Welcome, everybody, to the Medio podcast. Uh, I'm Josh Harrigan, a pediatric infectious disease and clinical informatics fellow in Boston, and joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason Newland. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Newland. I'm a professor of pediatric, pediatrics at Washington University in St. Louis and a pediatric infectious diseases physician. I also work at BJC Healthcare System. And I'm excited for another episode, Josh. Not too shabby, right? Number three. Pretty exciting. We're doing pretty good here. Yep. We'll see how long <laughs> this lasts. And I think the reason why we're doing so well is because we've decided to finally get on guests and have guests join us. So it's just not you and I babbling back and forth. And today we have a dear, dear friend of mine and a super important person involved in the world of pediatric infectious diseases and who I have learned a ton with and had great stories that both are pediatric infectious diseases related as well as not. And that's Dr. Christina Bryant, who is the president of the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society and is leading our society in what one would say the most interesting times. Um, And so Chris, like to welcome you to our wonderful podcast. Thanks so much, Jason and Josh. It is really an honor to be here with you today. Um, Like Jason, I am a professor of pediatrics. I work at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. I practice pediatric ID at Norton Children's Hospital, uh, where I work as the hospital epidemiologist. And these are interesting times. Who would have thought? A pandemic. Yeah, a pandemic um, to to discover the racial disparities that probably have been known but have just been further brought to light. And now here we are talking about this. And I feel like, Chris, you and I, while known each other for many years, and I think we have gotten to know each other even more so um, over the last couple of months due to the due to the pandemic um, and due to our different roles within the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society as I'm a board member. And I guess that's why I, one of the big reasons why we wanted to have you on is sitting from a position of a, of a national society, leading a group of physicians who are, frankly, while we might not be in the hospital front line, we are on the front line in a way of support. Um, and doing a lot of work to support the pediatric community. So I'd just like to hear your thoughts about, as a the president of, of PIDS, we'll refer to Pediatric Infectious Society, and kind of what you see as we move forward. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting. The Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society, or PIDS, has strategic aims. And our first strategic aim has been to promote the value of pediatric ID um, to the healthcare community, to the healthcare systems. And, you, you know, in some ways it sounds odd right now during the pandemic. Why would we need to promote the value of pediatric ID? And I think some of this is rooted in the fact that PEDS ID physicians have historically been at the lowest end of the pay scale. Um, And and this has caused a a lot of consternation among pediatric ID physicians. Many think that it's affected our recruitment to our subspecialty and uh, really played a role in uh, what we think is not enough people choosing pediatric ID as a career. And so now, you know, three, four months into the pandemic, um, it's easy to forget those things because how could somebody not realize 
how important ID physicians and pediatric ID physicians are um, pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and post-pandemic. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think I've said to people, um, if you're a pediatric or pediatric infectious disease doctor or just an infectious disease doctor, and you're not just a little jazzed by this, maybe you picked the wrong field. I mean, this is what we are meant to be doing. Uh, I think our skill sets go well beyond the, you know, the day-to-day clinical medicine. Um, this pandemic is demonstrating all those skill sets and all of the the excitement that you could say excitement that comes with this job from the amazing research that many of our colleagues are doing with trying to understand the virus, trying to understand how the virus impacts children, trying to understand the new multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, trying to understand or develop the clinical trials for children, including the vaccine trials. Um, Also, you can speak to this better than I, right? Being an epidemiologist, being someone involved in infection prevention, the number of decisions that you are making on a, I would say day to day, but that's actually too long of a time frame. frame. It's probably hour to hour to minute to minute that you are dealing with because these, the, the times and the things were changing so quickly. And the skill set of actually just communication. How do you communicate with your frontline colleagues? I mean, there are so many things that I think we are showing that the importance that we have in regards to this. So I, I've, I've, I've found it just fascinating and, and stressful and probably some of the hardest times um, in my career and trying to deal with this stuff. I'm I'm also curious, though, from Josh's perspective, in the midst of your fellowship, are you like, did I choose this wrong? What was I thinking? There's been no better time to be a fellow, I think, because there is so much work to be done uh, that there's so many opportunities to participate and uh, be a part of maybe some different things that I may not have been a part of. You know, I don't know um, what you guys have been doing at your institutions per se, but, you know, our division quickly divvied up different areas and formed working groups and fellows have been integral parts of each of those working groups trying to look at COVID from these different perspectives. And so um, I I got involved in our diagnostics working group, um, which has not been a, a an area of focus for myself at all in my, my previous research or training or experience. So that's been something that I've uh, been able to learn way, way, way more about um, than I would have, you know, under normal circumstances. I, I think that it's been an amazing, like I said, an amazing time to be a fellow. Um, I think one of the things that, you know, I'm starting to think about as I'm a senior fellow and, you know, always actively involved in the recruitment of new fellows um, to our program and to the profession as a whole. I'm I'm curious as to, you know, what do you guys think in terms of how the upcoming fellowship recruitment season may be affected by our current circumstances? Well, it's going to be different for sure um, because all fellow interviews will be um, virtual. There will be no in-person interviews for fellowship. 
And so that will be different for, um, for programs and for applicants um, needing to choose a fellowship training program um, based on Zoom interviews and um, virtual detective work, learning about programs. I, I think it may also depend on how many fellows have had a positive experience as you have, Josh. So I am so excited to know that the, the pandemic brought new opportunities for you and a lot of engagement. I, I wonder if that is a universal experience across the country. Um, you know, to some extent, um, there was an effort to say, okay, trainees don't need to be in the hospital. Trainees shouldn't work with COVID-positive patients. Um, research, non-COVID-related research was sidelined. And um, perhaps not all fellows had the best experience during the pandemic. And so I think how that's translated um, may affect how uh, potential fellows see training opportunities. I don't know, Jason, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that the, the fellows have gone through a lot on many fronts. I think you've you definitely highlighted them. I wonder, as Josh was talking about his experience doing some laboratory stuff, how our fellows would say, you know, our fellows actually took on ex, some extra service time to kind of, I think, help out uh, because we were going to be short on some ends. And they just, they really stepped up to do more. Our hospital wasn't busy, so I don't. It'll be interesting to see what their belief or experience was um, as as this moves forward. I do worry that response, at least from the research perspective, um, took people away from what they should have been doing in their research curve, you know, because they weren't COVID related, um, and how that's going to feel because the time is so short to do research, um, and you, you know, we've. Basically, many of the basic science labs were shut down for a solid three months and are just getting started again. So that's going to be an interesting dilemma for them as they move forward. You know, Chris, you you have been involved with the program directors for the fellowships for years. Um, I know you and Angie Myers, who Josh and I both know quite well and, you know, think the world of with all the amazing things she's done. And I know you guys have been close colleagues in this. You know, you guys have had to deal with a lot of different factors involved with fellowship. And I'm going to bring up one controversial one because I feel like I just want to have the conversation is this whole notion of the match in a small special, especially like ours. Do you have a match or don't you have a match? And I just want to hear your thoughts about this, you know, as I think this is a conversation that's going to continue to happen over the years. Well, uh, yeah, there's a lot of discussion happening around that. So. Jason, as you know, and Josh may not know, um, ID was one of the last subspecialties to enter the match. And um, Angie is the current training program directors, uh, current chair of the training program directors committee for PIDS. Um, I uh, was lucky enough to hold this position before Angie. And uh, one of my tasks was to try to move our colleagues toward the match. From the 
healthcare professions, educator side, the perspective of APPD and some of the other professional organizations. Um, the, the idea, and this has been studied, is that the match is good for trainees, that the match benefits trainees um, because it allows them to uh, take a look around, to interview at a lot of programs, to not make um, a snap decision, to not be forced into a, okay, I'm going to go interview at program A, they like me, I like them, um, they make me an offer and I have to choose now um, before um, looking at other options. And, and so a lot of the debate initially was, okay, it's the evidence would seem to suggest that it is good for trainees and this is what trainees want. And, you know, programs weren't so sure, but we entered the match with the idea that we were doing the very best for trainees with trainees' best interest at heart. And I will say the match has been successful, but every year we hear stories, anecdotes, of uh, fellows who enter the match, start interviews, and then withdraw because they've been given an offer by a program and they take it outside the match. And so we, you know, we've had a lot of conversations. This, this feels unfair, unfair to programs who interviewed the candidate, unfair to programs who, um, you know, frankly, we just haven't had enough applicants to our subspecialty. And every year positions go unfilled, programs go without fellows. And from the program perspective, it feels like, hey, I played by the rules and I didn't make an offer to a candidate outside the match. I waited and great candidates were snapped up by other programs who weren't, quote, playing by the rules. And, and so uh, on the adult ID side, they have an all-in match. So every program is supposed to participate in the match and not take candidates outside the match. And we've had discussions, so do we need to do that too? Um, and I will say, as we've discussed this on the board, some interesting perspectives have emerged. Alternative perspectives that I, I'm guessing, Jason, you wanted to give voice to here. It, it has been proposed that maybe the match isn't what isn't the best for candidates in 2020. Um, maybe that it is um, infantilizing that uh, we put candidates through a process where they interview and they wait and on match day, it's a surprise where they're going to move with their families. Um, and would it not be better um, to let them interview for jobs in the same way that most adults do when they finish their training? And, and the truth of it is, I don't know the right answer. Yeah. I, I just, I thought, I found um, the conversation, because I just assumed a match made sense because they did in a residency. I remember as a, 
as a resident, you know, getting my fellowship, it was kind of like I got offered 18 months before I was going to be done. And I said, oh, okay. Um, so I, I think I interviewed at two places and then this one place, had, you know, and I, I said, yeah, great. But I, I, and so I always felt that, you know, kind of this, let's all go in on the match because we'll all be doing the same thing throughout the country. And then we had these conversations about, well, that's not treating these people like adults. And now they have to wait to find out. And I was like, oh, I never thought of it in that light. This is really interesting from my perspective because I am in two fellowships. So I can draw parallels and contrast things between the two the two fellowships. So the Clinical Informatics Fellowship is uh, very, very new. They ostensibly have a match, but because of many complicating factors in terms of the way that positions are offered and funded at different institutions, they can't um, participate in the, the, the full matching process. It is not an ideal situation without uh, having a formal match. And the, the subspecialty of clinical informatics is very much trying to move towards having a more formal match process because it can be um, very difficult. And we don't, uh, I would say we don't feel like it is really serving the trainees um, at that point. So I, I understand where this is coming from and have quite frankly had the same thoughts myself. Would it be better to have more more of a system, you know, akin to finding jobs? The flip side of that is participating in another subspecialty that doesn't have a formal match um, just feels really uh, hectic and confusing and not serving the trainees. And, and so I, I think any change away from a match process, I think, should be really, really carefully considered in terms of the actual process and how it's going to function. Um, so I don't know what what has been discussed in terms of what the future would look like. It, the future will look interesting, I think. And I think, boy, don't you wish you had Angie on? But we maybe we'll just have to make yeah. sure she listens. And then she can come after me. You know, I, I think... Um, Angie has voiced um, commitment to the match, as have I in the past, um, because we understood that it was what trainees wanted. And again, there was there was some evidence that it seemed to be what was best for trainees. Um, and before the match, it was a bit of a free for all. Now, you know, things change over time. And I, I think that may be our task. To, to figure out, is there something different? Do do trainees still perceive that this is the best choice for them, that this is benefiting them? Which which gets to this point we, that I think we had intended to get to, but I'm sorry, I sidetracked us, but which is how do we get more trainees interested in our specialty and... Does the COVID-19 pandemic help or hurt us? From my perspective, you know, for the for the upcoming year, most of the people I think who are going to apply in, in this match are, you know, already down this pathway. I think it's more interesting to potentially think about uh, people who are medical students now, for example, and you have people like Anthony Fauci, you know, was on the news day in and day out for, for weeks on end. Um, and other people 
uh, other infectious disease doctors that, you know, have been elevated and the work that we're doing is really being spotlighted. So I think it, just my opinion, it seems like we may we may see this not immediately, but um, hopefully going forward. Josh, I, I hope you are right. Uh, that's what I feel uh, that, you know, what, what an exciting time to be an infectious disease doctor. Um, you, you know, uh, to um, be able to uh, participate in this work. But I think that's not the only perspective. I, I think people also see on TV, not just Dr. Fauci, but healthcare workers who are tired and overwhelmed and haven't always had access to appropriate personal protective equipment. They've read the stories of healthcare workers on the front lines who've contracted COVID-19. I, I don't know what, what you all have seen in St. Louis and in Boston. I think Boston has certainly been, um, you know, in the uh, re- really in the eye of the storm, so to speak, with large numbers of cases, much different than Louisville. Um, but I, but I think across the spectrum, there have been healthcare workers who've been afraid, uh, and a few who've said, "Oh wow, you know, you know, maybe this is not what I thought I was signing up for." So it'll be interesting to see how trainees perceive this. H- have you all seen any of that, the, the fear or the um, sort, sort of reluctance because of fear? I don't feel like I've seen it in the medical residents, but I haven't been around them as much um, over the last, really, month or so because we've been doing so much stuff from home. And all of our so I but I haven't I never didn't feel it before though I, I'm sure it's there I I think it, you know it has to be there in some respects. Yeah, I would say I have the same thought or, or the same experience, um, just because I have not been you know I've been working from home and not in the like the milieu of the the hospital or around a lot of the trainees and stuff. So it's difficult to judge. I think we have many challenges. Um, one is, uh, is and it's something we talk about always in, in the PIDS board and, and just throughout my career is about the, you know, attracting uh, people to our specialty and, and, the, and this value proposition and always feeling like we have to tell people how valuable we are um, in regards to, you know, what we do. And, and I and I and that's always been a struggle about how to weigh that. And I I think now in light of the last really over a week, um, in regards to the structural racism and racial disparities that have become evident in COVID nineteen, then has us all you know turning inward to look at our own societies about what what do they look like and what do they say. And and you know Chris, you led a tweet um, on June second. That one of the quotes within the 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 statement, I guess it really was a statement, said structural racism is more harmful to the health and well-being of children than infectious diseases. That tweet got a columnist 
at the New York Times sending us emails about what we meant. So that's very powerful. Uh, you and I have talked about this often. I, I just want you to just what your thoughts are kind of in this notion of um, where we as a society are in both the recruitment of those in kind of these uh, under or these underserved or you know less privileged groups into our society. What do we need to do? And then what this structural racism in, the, in general, um, how are we going to do better with it? I was pleased to see um, how many times that it was retweeted and the attention that it got. And I was proud of our society for um, speaking up. Um, and I, I think the undertone in the New York Times uh, columnist email to us was really more... Um, I agree. More than infectious diseases, right? Um, so, and, and the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society is saying something is more important than infectious diseases. Um, and, and, and so what's behind that? Well, uh, okay, we, we have vaccines to prevent infectious diseases. We don't have a vaccine for racism, right? We don't, um, we have antibiotics that can be used judiciously, Jason. Good. Uh, uh, for infections, but but what's the treatment for racism? And, and so um, those are big questions that we need to tackle. Um, but I am very happy to uh, remind um, you and the listeners, and, and maybe Josh hasn't heard about this yet because we haven't done a good job of publicizing it, but PIDS has created an, in, an inclusion, diversity, access, and equity task force that is led by Tony Flores and Tina Tan. And the group's charge, really, is to articulate IDANE principles for PIDS, to look at our existing policies, practices, our processes, to figure out where we have opportunities to improve or implement best practices. And then finally, to identify strategies to increase underrepresented popula populations among those pursuing careers in PEDS-ID. Look, we know that our membership um, and, and really the body of pediatric infectious diseases physicians does not reflect the diversity of those we serve. And that really needs to change. Well said. Well said. Um, and I think we have opportunities uh, to help even in the whole field of pediatrics. You know, Mobin Rathor uh, is up for AAP president. I think voting um, ends June 9th. He's a pediatric infectious diseases physician, has been on the board. He has been at the president of the AAP chapter in Florida, has done a lot around diversity and inclusion, done a lot around gun violence. I can't think of a better person to be leading the American Academy of Pediatrics than a pediatric infectious disease physician who's dedicated his career not only to infectious diseases, but inclusion and diversity. So I think, but these are the members that we needed to build up and have more of, as you said, Chris, and putting in some structure to what how we go about different things, such as the antimicrobial stewardship conference that we put on every year. Um, we need to make sure that, you know, 
we are addressing disparities, racial disparities, making sure that you know the lineup of speakers has diversity. That is going to be on us as we move forward um, as a society to have the structures that will show people that this is the place I want to be and this is the type of specialty that represents who I am and, and who we care for. And this has really been a, a, a learning experience for me. Um, you know, I, I think on some level I have thought, well, of course we promote diversity and inclusion. Um, of course we, um, all of our members have equal access to all that our society provides. Of course we do. Um, but then taking a step back, um, you have to ask the question, how do we know that? And just because I think that, is that true? Um, where, where do we have opportunities? Tony Flores reached out um, last year, oh, maybe more than a year ago, and said, hey, I think we need to do this. And I said, I think you're right. And, you know, then... Um, then life intervenes and things intervene and, and things move slowly, too slowly. And I, I think it has become apparent that this work is urgent, that it can't be put aside. Now, we, we, um, we uh, had a call for volunteers. We um, put the uh, task force together um, before the events of recent weeks. Um, but I think we need to give this our highest priority and to, to do anything else, I think, um, would, would, would not be okay. Um, so Jason, um, you know, in terms of the, um, recent statements from the society, um, you know, we, we've spoken out, but, um, you said to me, um, okay, uh, you know, at some point, enough talking, time for doing. So I think that's what we need to talk about. What, what is the doing moving forward? Well, you are right, Chris. Um, my biggest fear is that the protests, as they slowly but surely move away through, move through in a way, the society, then we are back to the, the you know, pre-George Floyd time or post-Michael Brown time and, you know, a number of steps forward then lead to two steps back. So what are the systemic and structural changes that are going to be made? We have to make them. We have to decide individually what those changes are within your day-to-day -day life, what you're going to do work-wise, how that's going to change, how you're going to say this, how you're going to call out microaggressions to both people of color, as well as to uh, women and others. And we're going to make sure that we understand that. We're going to have to agree that you're going to read um, Just Mercy, or you're going to go read White Fragility, and you're going to talk about what that means. Those are the starts. I think structurally for me, um, the group that I work with, the coordinators and stuff, we're doing we're going to do their, our inclusion and diversity training. I can't believe we haven't done it. That's on me. Every piece of research that we are going to do as we move forward 
It's going to have race ethnicity as part of it, and we're going to understand how those race ethnicities are determined and make sure that we have the processes in place to do that. That has to be done. We can no longer just describe somebody's race ethnicity as a risk factor without trying to make comments after that of why that could be. I say that because I am a little bit mortified by my own understanding of infectious diseases in the sense that probably for 20 years in this field, not quite 20 years, I have known that you know Native Americans and Alaskan Natives have an increased risk of streptococcus pneumoniae invasive disease. Never thought anything other of it except they're Native American, they have an increased risk. Never tried to go deeper. Never tried to understand maybe it's the living conditions. Maybe it's the access to healthcare. Maybe it's the, the pieces of that. That's what we can't continue. There has to be more. So I said a lot, and I think that's, but that's where we each have to do it. And that's where the society, that's why I'm excited about a task force. And I, I'll probably eventually be at a PIDS board meeting and say, task force isn't enough. This needs to be a committee. This needs to be stand on its own. It, the, the antimicrobial stewardship committee started as a subgroup of the clinical affairs committee. And within a year, it was its own committee. You could argue that a task force isn't enough anymore for any of this sorts of work. And because I have and know leaders like yourself, Chris, um, Buddy, Susan, Buddy Creech, Susan Coffin, Paul Spearman, you know, Adam Hirsch, Natasha Lassa, I mean, Archie Chatterjee, on and on, I know we will be better. And I know like when Josh is the PIDS president, <laughs> heaven forbid, but when Josh is the PIDS president. It's a fun job, Josh. No doubt, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. We will be in a place that'll be better, and he will make it even that much better. But it has to start now, and it can't just be conversation. Uh, agree. And I think a task force was thought to be the way to go initially because it could be small and nimble and get the work done. And I don't think it implies any lesser commitment on the part of the society, for sure. I, I think this society is committed to this work, um, and this seemed like the best way to get started. So, Josh, I, what would you like to see from the society with regard to diversity, inclusion, access, and equity? So I think one of the things that all of us are trying to examine within ourselves are what are the concrete things that we can do? What steps can I take myself? Um, Jason already mentioned quite a few of them, but I think that's where um, a professional society could be very helpful is providing um, something for its members to one, help examine themselves in their own practices. Uh, and then also here are, you know, some concrete steps um, to improve the situation, to make things better, to make a change. I think that that could be really powerful as a, as a way to create change uh, kind of within our own little niche in the, the pediatric infectious disease uh, community. That, that's great feedback. I, you know, I was reading this morning 
um, about the difference between being not racist and anti-racist, mm. right? Wow. So uh, ha- have you all read some of this or, or um, heard these discussions? Yeah, I have seen more and more people talking about this, and I think it's a key distinction to make because it really crystallizes the call to action that we need at this point in time if we're ever going to truly affect change uh, and make a difference in systemic racism. And I was really heartened by my own institution as this specific uh, topic was discussed in a recent town hall meeting uh, as a key uh, distinction that we need to draw and that we need to heed in terms of our response and being active, or perhaps a better way to put it is to be proactive in our fight against systemic racism. Yes, I, um, I, I think that is probably one of the most um, powerful lessons I have learned. And Jason, I, I have you to thank for it. Um, you and I recently wrote a, a commentary on a JAMA Pediatrics Um, article that described 50 children in New York with COVID-19. And we were invited to write a commentary. And uh, when you sent me the draft, um, you, you called out, um, you called out people who talked about race as a risk factor. And what does this mean? And I'll say it, I was nervous, because I didn't want to say the wrong thing. I, I didn't want to hurt people's feelings. I didn't want my own um, lack of knowledge or, you know, I didn't want to inadvertently say something about race that would be hurtful. Um, I didn't want to upset people, anybody, right? And Jason, you called me out and you said, if we're not going to say this, who will? It, it is time that we speak out. And so we did. Thank you for nudging me. You're, you are welcome, um, but it, you made it so much better because uh, we had to make the statements right. Um, that's essential. As a white male, uh, I've you know I think there's always the we've seen this we've seen the movies that basically the white male becomes the heroine of a of a of a race race movie that you're like that's ridiculous. Um, and that's what I think we also fear about, right, is that we are not in the best positions. And, you know, in talking to some colleagues here at WashU have done a lot in race equity, um, Jason Purnell, if anybody reads the Boston Review, he and a group wrote an amazing Boston Review about St. Louis and the COVID-19 pandemic. But in talking with these brilliant people, some of the best people that can speak up for this are people like you, Chris, myself, Josh because we are in groups of privilege. Uh, And if we can do the message and be cognizant of the message, we can make a big difference. So I appreciate you being open and allowing us to uh, be bold. And we have to continue to be bold. We, We do. I think this can't just be a blip on the radar in response to recent events. Um, to, to the loss of life, to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, this can't just be a reaction. 
you know, in some ways it's a little bit shocking. I, 20 years ago, I never would have thought we would be here now. That the work, that there would be so much work to be done and um, so much inequity left. I, I feel like, and I'm hopeful that this time is, is different. Um, it feels different to me. It feels different, I agree. But are we going to be willing, when we're through this, and when we're comforted by the fact the pandemic's gone, and we're, our economy is back to where the economy was, and people are going to be doing these things, are we going to be willing to give up some of that wealth to fight against the structural racism that's here? Are we going to be willing to step back out and go look at these communities that have no good health care? There's no or not no good, but there's not health care available for them. Are we going to be willing to provide the insurance, the expand Medicaid, do these things in some of these states that haven't? Are we willing to revamp our healthcare system in the areas that need it the most? Jason, I want to answer how can we not be willing to do that? Um, but then you can look over your shoulder at, at, at our history and say, oh, wow. We, we had opportunities before that we did not seize. I say this because I've seen so many great leaders that I that I respect and trust write these unbelievably eloquent 2,000, 1,500-2,000-word essays acknowledging, finally acknowledging the, the root cause, the structural racism, these things that have put us in this position and, and stating that we're going to go, we're going to make this better. I'm skeptical. I don't want to be skeptical, but I'm skeptical, and I and I hope we remember and we're doing more. And I hope when we do this podcast again, we can talk about here are some of the changes we've seen in our communities and throughout our society. Words are powerful, but now we need action. Yeah, I think that that's really well said. Chris Bryant, you never disappoint. Yeah, this is really great. Thanks, Chris, for for taking some time and uh, joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me.